I'm Jonathan Frankel. I am chief scientist of neural networks at Databricks and Mosaic ML. Um, and I don't do coffee, but I am an avid Chipotle connoisseur. Um, Chipotle, which is an excellent Databricks customer. Welcome back to the MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Demetrios, and today I am joined by none other than my man, Denny Lee. What's going on, bro? How's it going, Demetrios? Glad to be here. Glad to be of some use, uh, occasionally. Well, I'm super excited about this because we got Jonathan on here, the man of many talents. We talked about so many different pieces on what he's done in the past, what he has basically how he joined the Databricks team where you're currently working. So for those who do not know, you're a developer advocate at Databricks. You are doing some incredible work. We met, I think, almost a year ago, and we had a lot of fun organizing all kinds of different conferences and doing all kinds of uh, stuff together, we could say, which we get into in this podcast a bit. And we, yeah, yeah, we, got into, we did a little bit of the censored version, but the correct uh, we, we can't reveal everything that's true <laughs> yeah. yeah we don't want to give away any plot twists that come up but jonathan was a man that i met i think when we organized the lm avalanche in june he sat on one of the panels that i was hosting and in that moment i knew that this guy is a bit of a curveball on panels we talked about that he mentioned how in some of the panels in new york he is not invited back to and so we had a good laugh about that but then we talked about his work in law and what he did with policymakers i found that fascinating did you have any huge takeaways because at the end we also talked about mosaic and what they're they've been doing how they're utterly focused on making sure training and customers are able to do exactly what they need to do when making large language models i know you have all kinds of extra context on this but in the little box of this conversation what were some of your huge takeaways i mean i think the key and the reason why um you know number one thankful for always joining you for these type of sessions but the, i think the key thing that you really want to learn from jonathan here unequivocally is it's do the science right yeah you, you have to be able to cut through the hype through what is often bs and let the scientific process take its course they're Plenty of people who, it, it, this community is very diverse, very variety, very uh, different opinions. That's a great thing, not a bad thing. Um, but there's also this obsession for takedowns. And again, as much as we make fun of those things, right? There, there's the, there's the big, the big companies that you you can absolutely do that. And in fact, it's fun <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> By the same token, there's a lot of really, really good science being done by really, really smart people that don't have nearly as many resources. And it's important that we go out of a way to support um, yeah. science, even if it's not exactly right, because guess what? It helps us learn. And this is the key thing, right? This is this field, everybody wants to make a big deal about, oh, yeah, we're going to go through the next breakthrough, uh, uh, breakthrough tomorrow. And again, Jonathan does a wonderful job explaining how to sort of level set your expectations and how to look at this, uh, these problems in, in a better way. And again, just to reiterate what Jonathan said, it's about science. Yep. He really has his feet on the ground. I love how he talked about when they're iterating, when they're running with projects, it takes months for them to figure out a if the project is worth investing more time into. And he also is very pragmatic in the way that he looks at it. Like, 
hey, if I'm about to train a $10 million model, yeah. I need to have the confidence that that model is going to come out good and right. usable. Absolutely. And so I love that pragmatic approach. I also really appreciated him talking about, and, and we joked around at the beginning, on the panels and how he is uh, a bit of a curveball, but then he was very supportive of the scientific community. And like you said, even if people are doing work and they're putting out papers that are really cool and they get a lot of hype, but when you try and put them to the test in the industry, they don't necessarily hold up. He is not the guy that is going out there and bashing them for that. Right. And that was really nice to hear and how much of an advocate he is for the scientists that are out there that are finishing their PhDs. And he he started off the conversation with saying like, PhDs are hard. It's uh, not something to be taken lightly. So I appreciate you being on here. I appreciate Jonathan coming on here. And of course, I appreciate Databricks Mosaic for being what I like to call the premium brand partner of the MLOps community. Hope you like that new term that I just coined. I love it. Absolutely enjoy it. This is awesome. All right. We'll see you all on the flip side. Let's get into this conversation. All right, man. So it's good to have you on here. I'm excited to talk to you. I haven't actually chatted with you since we were live in person. And that was almost six months ago, I feel like, when we were in California. And yeah, that was a, I mean, if I remember right, that was a fun day. I had not slept for a week prior to that. I was, um, I was at my least inhibited, shall we say. Um, <laughs> and I also loved, are you, are you admitting, are you admitting we liquored you up? Is that what you're saying? Oh, you did. <laughs> you, you liquored me up with sleep deprivation. Um, All right, fair enough. and you know, negotiating an acquisition until the very last moment and filling out paperwork until the very last moment. Um, and so by that point, um, I was ready to have some fun and I love panels, um, in general, um, and all that good stuff. Like, you know, it's great fun because you can, um, ask hard questions in front of an audience to your friends. And I love getting to, you know, I, what's the right word? Um, I love getting to kind of steal moderation a little bit and kind of turn the questions around on the people who are there because it just makes things a little Which more fun. Did. Yeah, you made my job easy or uh, more complicated, I should say. I, I was hoping for more complicated. Um, so I, you know, in the New York AI startup community, I think I've been banned from doing panels informally. Now I keep getting invited <laughs> to fireside chats before panels. Um, and I don't know if anyone wants to be on panels with me anymore. All right. It's so okay. we'll, we'll, we'll throw some for, for this upcoming year. We'll, we'll definitely throw some uh, new ones for you. Okay. Just, just specials just yeah. for you. It, it has to be new co-panelists and new moderators. So I don't think anybody else is ever going to invite me back. So yeah, there were points where I was ready to take your microphone from you. <laughs> and I, I do not, I'm not at all surprised that you've been banned from panels in New York. There was, and we'll, we'll lay out the premise for everyone because we just jumped into it. But for those who do not know, in June this year, 2023, so this last year, by the time this comes out, we, oh, oh, now we've lost his, oh, 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 oh dear. Well, guess it's just you and me. Oh, okay. Well, so I, I, I could, I, I guess I could provide the context. Yeah, yeah so, we, we so, can run the podcast. Yeah, yeah there we go. 
And the, yeah, exactly. That's true. So the context that Demetrios was actually saying was that, uh, because we're actually recording live anyway, so it's perfectly fine, um, was that last June in 2023, and I think Demetrios was trying to say that by 2024, uh, when this podcast comes out, it'll be last year. But the context is that we had this event uh, as part of the Data and AI Summit 2023. Um, the, the conference, or sorry, the meetup, excuse me, was um, called the LM Avalanche with a Demetrios, Alexei, and myself as the uh, organizers. And so it was a little bit of fun. And uh, we put together the event in less than three weeks. It was a little crazy, but we uh, were all at the Contemporary Jewish Museum uh, as our venue. And then Jonathan, our esteemed uh, speaker here, is uh, was one of the key panelists uh, for uh, within LM Avalanche. And he proceeded to... Uh, ask questions from the audience when normally, or the other panels when normally the moderator is actually supposed to be the one asking those questions. And so, yes, that's actually, I think, where we went. No, nobody told me that. Like, what? you got to tell me in advance okay. that the moderator is the no, moderator, no, no, not me. No, 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 it's okay. I purposely left it that way. I wasn't actually, <laughs> wasn't actually trying to stop anything from happening. But actually, let's talk a little bit about that, that context because uh, I actually forgot which panel was it that we put you on, actually. I think it was about cost or about about something along those lines. I remember I had, you know, or maybe even been about evaluation. There was someone from Anthropic there. There was someone from Google DeepMind there. It was an amazing right. panel. I think someone from Cohere was there potentially. That's like, right. That's fantastic right. Fantastic yes, group yes. of people. And honestly, I had a lot of questions I wanted to ask them. So I appreciate the opportunity to have gotten to, you know, find out stuff. Oh, yeah. I think that was the performance panel that we actually yeah, saw yeah. That set up. That sounds that. right. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, because we were actually, oh, we lost Demetrius again. So because actually, I did want to actually ask a little bit about the, from a security panel, because we were debating on, uh, on the, when it came to the security and safety panel, whether that actually made sense for you to jump on that. But saying that, um, hey, Demetrius, we have you back. Uh, for, you hear if, me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your, how you are an adjunct professor of law, but you have no legal background. What's going on there? Yeah, there's a lot of... I have some weird things on my resume, but this is by far the weirdest. Um, prior to my PhD, I'd finished up my undergrad and my master's and was supposed to start a PhD, lasted exactly a week and dropped out because I was not happy and it just wasn't working for me. Um, so for anyone who's having a hard time during your, their PhD, been there, done that, dropped out once and almost dropped out a second time after going through four advisors in my first two years at MIT. Um, PhDs are hard. It's okay for them to be hard. Um, and I was just sitting at home looking for something to do. And through a bunch of weird coincidences and circumstances, um, the folks at Georgetown Law at this brand new uh, center called the Center for Privacy and Technology um, happened to have received a grant they did not apply for. Um, and also were looking to hire what they call in DC a technologist. Um, a technologist is anyone who knows about anything science or technology, like me, the chemists, the climate folks, they're all technologists. Um, but they were looking to hire someone who knew their technology really well um, and could come in and just kind of provide input to a lot of the work they were doing. And so I showed up and they put me to work, you know, helping out for, to understand the technical aspects of police use of facial recognition. And this oh. was back in 2015. So back then this was, today it looks like an AI question. Back then it was a privacy and surveillance question. And I think the work, which eventually, you know, revealed that I think at that point, like, you know, some huge percentage of all American drivers were actually in police facial recognition databases or American adults were in police facial recognition databases. Now it's basically everyone and, you know, even other kinds of biometric information like DNA 
um, samples. You know, a large portion of Americans are now in those databases. It was the first to really break that story for state and local police. And I got to learn a lot about facial recognition and, you know, just how, you know, how much of our data is available to police every day and what can go wrong. Um, how was it available? Just from Facebook? Oh, from like, so a lot of state driver's license databases were being made available to the FBI or to police agencies. Um, other databases of mugshots, even immigration data were circulating around. And keep in mind, this is almost a decade ago. And all this, these databases have gotten a hell of a lot better and more sophisticated since then. Um, so if you're an American driver, the police can probably look up your face whenever they have security camera footage of someone robbing a store or anything like that. And if you happen to be unlucky on that day, and there have been some unlucky people, uh, you may get to spend a night in jail. Um, and, you know, for someone who may miss work the next day or may have kids or anything, this can completely turn your life upside down. Yeah. Well, this goes into the ethics question of it all. I imagine back in those days, the accuracy was not that high. So the accuracy was not that high. But also, I and this is an argument, you know, many of my friends who are now at the center will make. I don't think bad accuracy is the right argument for we shouldn't use AI. Because in the limit, accuracy of pretty much any AI system is going to be great. Like back at that time, we surfaced some potential concerns about bias in facial recognition that, you know, other folks, Joy Bolomwini most prominently took to the next level and showed were really a huge problem. Um, but bias is also not an excuse or not a kind of a basis on which to make policy decisions about AI. Because in the limit, you know, facial recognition is actually a really easy task for deep learning. Um, with enough data and with good data, kind of with what we have in 2023, we could solve facial recognition to a to a decent extent. And I could probably do that as a summer project if a police department hired me as an intern. Um, I'm not available for internships right now, just for the record. Um, so if you want to make a policy argument about AI and whether we should use it or when we should use it, it's not about the quality. It's about whether automated decision making should be a part of the process and whether things should be so frictionless. That's really where the argument should lie, in my view. And break that down a little bit more. Automated decision-making full-on, so there's no human in the loop, or where the human touches the loop? Is that kind of the argument that you're saying? So there are, there are two ways of you know AI impacting the world, in some sense. Like, an AI system itself cannot impact the world unless either, one, we delegate decision-making authority to it, or two, we use it, it to provide input to some other decision-making process. Otherwise, it's literally just an AI system in a vat, and you know it can't do anything to touch anyone or change anything about the environment. So you know you can imagine, you know, a I don't know. Let's say that we have a hiring algorithm that just determines you know which resumes get screened by a human. That's authority we've delegated to an AI algorithm. Um, you know, alternatively, we have an AI algorithm that provides a score for every resume, and then that goes to a human. That is, you know, in some sense, using an AI system, and then the human makes the decision. Now, then people look for the easy out and say, well, humans should check every facial recognition match before they go and bust down someone's door. And, you know, so we looked into that a little bit, and there's, shocking no one, a whole literature on the fact that humans are actually quite bad at doing facial recognition ourselves. There is a well-documented other race effect going back decades. We're really good at recognizing people who look like us, not people who don't. Um, there is a whole pseudoscience of how to do facial recognition properly. And I emphasize pseudoscience because there's not a lot of science there. 
Um, there is training that makes people better at this. There are people who are super recognizers. There's a whole science of the psychology of doing facial recognition. But suffice it to say that having a human in the loop is not a solution either necessarily. Um, humans are flawed too. That is fascinating. I guess it just comes down to giving up our power and how we think we can always do it better. Or at least we have the, we're willing to take on the repercussions if something does go wrong because we've done it as opposed to outsourcing it and not really having any touch in it means that it's like it's kind of a random crapshoot even though it's not it, it still feels like well whatever anything can happen now yeah i kind of I, I think of this two ways some people are much more comfortable with the human making the decision because at least there's someone who can explain themselves um, you know, yeah. neural networks are not explainable. Even if you ask ChatGPT to explain itself, it will make up a rationale. Rationalizing and explaining are two very different things. The explanation for why ChatGPT said something is that you did gradient descent a large number of times in a lot of training data. The weights were set to this. That's the explanation. Um, on the other hand, there is something very attractive about looking to some process that doesn't have the human biases, um, at least in an idealized sense. Like the, the Seattle Police Department for a while had this FAQ on their website prior to our report where it was, you know, isn't this system biased? And the answer was no, it's an automated algorithm. It can't see race or gender. Um, and, you know, in 2015, I think that wasn't a crazy thing for someone to, you know, naively say. In 2023, a whole different story. But, you know, you get into the same thing with autonomous vehicles. Would you rather, you know, find out that a pedestrian was injured by a yep. human driver who was tired or intoxicated? Or would you rather find out that it was because a self-driving car thought the human was a cloud? Um, you know, which which one is more comforting to us as people? Not entirely sure. Yeah, me neither. That And that gets into, it's a serious ethical debate and it becomes very nuanced, especially when you look at the the attachments that we have on this type of stuff. But uh, I also wanted to ask you about this perpetual lineup.com because the suspense not, is not killing org. me. Emphasis man. on .org. Um, it's .org. Oh, and that's, why it's, yeah. that's why it's not up because I've been going to .com. Oh, that's why it's not working for me. Okay. So what is it? Break it down for me and the audience while I am looking at it. Yeah, this is the study. This is a year's worth of work on the part of, you know, two incredible lawyers, Claire Garvey, who led the whole study and worked tirelessly for a year, Alvaro Bedoya, who supervised it and is now an FTC commissioner um, who can affect these issues from government, and, you know, me as the third author and the least important but the technical contributor. Um, and this is our study as of 2015 of, you know, who was using facial recognition for what. Um, Claire filed Freedom of Information Act requests on, I believe it was over a hundred different state and local police departments to get all information about whether they were using facial recognition or not, um, and in what capacity. And, you know, it turned up thousands or tens of thousands of pages of, of stuff that she and Alvaro and I went through. And we tried to figure out where is this being used? How is it being used? What are the safeguards, if any? What are the companies that were providing this at that time? How does the technology work? What are the potential risks? And a lot of policy suggestions. This is kind of, you know, if you were to ask me, what is the work that you've done that you're proudest of? This is it. 
Um, it's not my lottery ticket work. It's not Mosaic ML. It's this. Um, this has made a difference in people's lives and affected everyday people. Um, that to me is what meaning and impact looks like. And for anyone in the ML community, we always need to take a step back and ask, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? What's the point? Um, and for me, this is the point. This is why I got my PhD in machine learning. It was to provide better information to policy folks um, and help us make better decisions about the world. And I mean, I literally, the call before this one, I do a bunch of policy work and I was just hanging out on a call, um, you know, helping to advise an international body on how they do policy. I don't tend to try to be in the spotlight for it, but I think it's just important that we're in the room and we're trying to be useful. Being useful doesn't mean that we tell people what to do. It means that when people ask us for information, we provide it to the best of our ability. W one thing I actually would love to add, uh, like ask, excuse me, uh, from that context is, it seems to be that there's this need from what you're talking about for lawyers and like the technologists to actually work better together to enact or create better policies. I mean, because again, you start off saying that, you know, it seems weird that you're you're a professor at a law school, yet that it seems like this is exactly what's extremely helpful, especially when you're looking at the uh, perpetuallineup.org. Yeah, I think it's, I would frame it differently. There's okay. a need for those with technical expertise to be of service. That's a different framing. We're not equal partners here, nor should we be equal partners. The policy folks are trained in taking into account society's needs and how to accomplish different ends that are better for society. We as technical people, that is not our job. We are not here to have amateur hour where we think about ethics and think about, you know, how we would run society if we were dictators um, or anything Talk like that. Talk on podcasts about it, all that fun stuff. I, I find it to be so stupid that we as technical people, in general, we're big on disruption. We're big on reinventing the wheel um, because we think we can do it better for some reason. Policy is not a place to disrupt and it is not a place to reinvent the wheel is a place to come and say, how can I be of service? And to be, a, you know, to be useful to the people who actually know how to take all this into account and to be useful to our society, not to be useful to ourselves or come in and say, I can do it better than you people. And yet that's yeah. what I typically encounter, I think, in the technical world. No policymaker needs an armchair quarterback. No. I, we can say what we want about the political process. Politics is different than policy. Policy yeah. is what and we want to accomplish. Yourself. Politics is, you know, how we decide who our leaders are and, you know, who gets to choose which policies we pursue. But when it comes to actually making the policy and trying to provide options about what we think is best for the world, um, you know, far be it from me to make that decision for all of society. My use is in knowing a lot about AI, given that Databricks and Mosaic are very open about what we do and we don't have some big secret model. Um, talking openly about the process by which we build AI because that insight is really important to policymakers. And then being useful and just answering questions when we're asked, speaking when spoken to, um, and not speaking out of turn. Yeah, leave the policymaking to the professionals, yes, is what it comes down to. Unless you'd like to invite them to train your model, um, in which yeah. case, you know. <laughs> yeah, you do a little... <laughs> Bring your friend to work day and they can do the same real swap. Uh, one thing that's interesting that jumped out at me from the website, perpetuallineup.org is 
that major face recognition systems are not audited for misuse. And that is pretty wild. Also, how evasive some of these different police departments were in sharing their data with you. And you you state here a few times, it's like, NYPD just straight up ghosted us. Uh, you put it in different terms. You put it in more politically correct terms, but it's basically like, yeah, we tried, but they denied our records uh, requests entirely. I believe that, that is... So, so it's it's important to emphasize, you know, all of this is a was in 2015. Um, if yeah. I recall correctly, there was actually legal action between Georgetown and the NYPD um, over the fact that they had publicly spoken about facial recognition systems and then said they had no responsive records. Um, now, you know, I think it's important to say, you know, it's important to speak on both both ends here. Like, it's easy to dunk on some of the law enforcement agencies that were not cooperative or I think, you know, were straight up misleading to us. Um, but I also like we did a site visit to the Michigan State Police, um, which has one of the most robust facial recognition systems, or at least at that time did, um, in collaboration with Michigan State University, which has the world's best lab on automated biometrics. Professor Anil Jain there is incredible. Um, and we visited both and I was actually very impressed. Um, so, you know, it's there are, I think, over 10,000 law enforcement agencies in the U.S. between state, local and federal. And you will see anything and everything from some things that are quite frankly ridiculous and unacceptable to a lot of really, really thoughtful people who are actually doing a great job. So again, easy to dunk on law enforcement and there's, there are always comically bad examples that come up. But that's not to say that, you know, everything is completely broken and there aren't folks who are doing the best work they can. There are also a lot of like five person police departments in very small places that don't have the time to go and talk to a PhD in computer science or get a PhD in computer science to figure out how to use this stuff. And so a lot of our work in that report was, you know, providing guidance so that somebody who just Googled police use of facial recognition would come across both a lot of people trying to sell them systems and a procurement template for what they what questions they should ask so that they can make the right decisions because most folks have good intentions. It's just hard to know everything about everything um, when dealing with systems like this. Well, that's fascinating stuff, man. And then fast forward, at some point in your life, Mosaic did happen. You also talked about some lottery stuff there. What was that? You Did you figure out how to win the lottery? Was... Uh, a lot of people probably think that based on some of the emails I get occasionally from people asking me how to pick the right lottery numbers. And I, so my, my dissertation research was on this topic called the lottery ticket hypothesis. Best name I've ever come up with by far. Um, and probably the best name I ever will come up with by far, which was just a very simple idea about asking, you know, how how big of a neural network do you really need to learn something? Um, when you're using a neural network of any given size, are all parts of it actually getting used for learning? Um, and you know, really asking, are we training these neural networks in a smart way? How much headroom is there for us to improve the efficiency of training? And you know, that work ended up being very popular. I will say these days, I don't think it's the world's most exciting topic to work on. So you know, I don't go and advise PhD students to work on that necessarily. The field has changed a lot since 2018. And you go where the cool problems are, not where the cool problems were. Um, I certainly don't advise my PhD students to work on that topic today. Um, but it was a really exciting topic at the time. I think it opened a lot of people's minds to, number one, that maybe there was a better way to train networks. Maybe there was a lot of room to reduce costs for those of us who were not GPU rich at that time. For those of us who literally just had a laptop and a K80 that we managed to find somewhere in the lab that nobody had figured out um, and you know all that good stuff. And it also, I think, helped to push forward this idea that 
maybe we need to be empirical about how we study AI. These systems have gotten so big and complicated and are so, you know, are so specific to the real world and the data set you use. And, you know, there's so many ways to train a network badly, but we really only care about the few ways to train a network well. Um, you know, if you want to, you can train GPT-4 and change the learning rate by 10x and you'll get garbage. Bring it down by 10x and you get GPT-4. But, and we don't care about the garbage. We care about GPT-4. So we need to be empirical. Um, that being theoretical and proving things about neural networks isn't enough. Um, we need to study them in the real world. And this was, I think at the time, not the most popular view of the world. But my work, because I'm really bad at math, um, was focused exclusively on empiricism. And that is just the one hammer that I bring to every problem. And I think that was influential. And then that, you know, that became Mosaic in a way. Um, the idea that we could make training more efficient is the genesis story for Mosaic. Naveen Rao, who became our CEO, just cold emailed me and said, nice paper, want to do a startup? I was like, no. Um, and here we are. So, um, <laughs> you know, Naveen is very persuasive. If you ever interact with him, watch out. He will convince you to do whatever he wants you to do and you'll be grateful for it. Um, but, you know, Mosaic doesn't apply the lottery ticket ideas correct, um, precisely, but the empirical idea and the idea that there's a lot of room to reduce the cost of training for the rest of us who are not GPU rich that is basically the entire story of Mosaic ML. Yeah, break that down a little bit because for me, on one hand, there's just break down what you were doing at Mosaic and then how much of what you were doing was giving your expertise to clients so that they were able to fully leverage that and get better models. Yeah, so at Mosaic, our product ended up, and you know, I say ended up because as with all good things, you wander for a while and you try to figure things out. Certainly during my PhD, before and after with Mosaic, we wandered a bunch. But the final product is a platform where you can just come and train a model and it will work and you will get good results. That means that GPU failures, everything from the hardware issues all the way up to loss spikes, optimization challenges, good hyperparameters that you know will be efficient and get you the best performance per dollar, all of that is just baked in. Um, and that is a ton of engineering and a ton of scientific research. Hey, I'm Vishnu. I'm a data scientist at First Hand, and I definitely think that you should subscribe to the MLOps Coffee Sessions podcast. It's the best podcast out there to stay on top of what MLOps actually is, to talk to the true thought leaders in the space. And oh, by the way, Demetrios is absolutely hilarious. What a weird guy. You should definitely subscribe to the podcast. The way I think of it is that my team's job, you know, I run our research and science team. My team's job is to push the frontier of our knowledge and put to the test knowledge that other people have claimed to exist um, in service of finding the best and cheapest way to train state-of-the-art stuff. And then we don't directly consult. Like, we're not a consulting company or anything like that. We build our expertise into our product. So if you use our product, you are getting the very best that we have as of that day. Um, and if a new paper comes out that week that is getting a lot of hype on Twitter, we will put it to the test. And I would say like seven times out of 10, it doesn't hold up in the settings that our customers would care about. Um, but I think we're still one of the only shops in the world where you can just come and train basically an arbitrary scale language model from scratch and get it right the first time. I remember talking with Naveen and he was very clear on Basically, and this was, I think, 
almost a year ago. And he was the first person to just tell me straight up, listen, if you have this much data, you're going to want to think about just doing fine tuning. There's no need to do anything with an LLM. It's pointless. You don't have the data for it. Once you get above this amount of data, and I can't remember the exact amount, you probably can quote me on it, but it was, I think it was in the, uh, in the range of like 10 billion, but I can't remember yep, it. All 10 billion now. is probably what I would have said. Um, yeah. and probably yeah, right. yeah. So I think it was around there. He was like, then it becomes a- advantageous for you to start training your own stuff. What I'm actually super interested to hear about though, is how you were taking the expertise and then building that into the product. What does that actually look like in practice? So you're saying, all right, cool. I know that, for example, this this part of training is a real pain in the ass. How can we make the product just automatically intuitive in that way so you don't even have to think about it or deal with it? So some of it is that our engineers are just superstars. Um, and my team uses everything that they build before it goes to customers because we're also training our own models. We have to prove... If I need to convince you that I can train a really good LLM, I have to train one first and open source it to convince you and convince the world that we can actually do that thing. And so that means we're beating the crap out of all of our tools before the customers ever see it. And so it has to be good enough for literally me as a manager who's in 30-something hours of meetings a week to also train models on the side um, and not break anything in the process for good things to happen. Um, And so we have to... like. Our engineering team is top-notch, and we have eaten all of that dog food well before it ever goes to any customer. Um, the other piece is then, how do we get our expertise in? This is a huge challenge for us as a company. If you roll back the clock, you know, this may feel like a long time, but four whole years, um, or three whole years, there were a lot of different models people wanted to train. There was a different one for image classification versus segmentation versus detection versus, you know, text classification versus sentiment analysis. We were starting to converge on BERT as maybe a basis for an architecture, you know, before we even had the word foundation model, but it was still all really different. And the methods that made each of those things work well was really different. And I was terrified that it was going to be death by a thousand cuts. I was going to have to do this for every single stack. And we picked models. We had ResNet 50 that we can train for like, you know, less than $10 at this point on ImageNet to, you know, really good quality accuracy. We had BERT that we can train, you know, for less than $20, we can pre-train it on whatever custom data you want. Um, We did that for image segmentation. We did it for a bunch of different things. And then, you know, LLMs have kind of taken over at this point and a few, you know, kind of vision foundation models. And now we just focus on really nailing those particular use cases and coming up with great recipes. So I think of this as like, we have our own LLM stack that looks really different from a lot of stuff that other people are doing in terms of our optimizer, our optimization strategy, our choice of position encodings, even our choice of model architecture is now like, it's a transformer, but it's a it's a thing that is markedly different from, I think, what everybody else uses. If you look at some of our stuff, they've just kind of evolved to the point where they're, they look like a weird Frankenstein kind of version of what other people are using. Um, and we, we are public about this stuff, and you should expect more in the not-too-distant future about what our current architecture looks like. It's pretty different from our last one and from what anybody else is doing. Um, but, you know, these things evolve, and then we make that recipe available to all of our customers. Um, and you know, we'll, we try to version it so that people, you know, aren't dealing with constant changes. But the important part is we've vetted the hell out of every single one of these decisions. If you sit down with me and ask rope or alibi, which position encoding should you use? I have, you know, pages and pages of really rigorous data on large scale models. 
telling you which one you should use and why for both performance and model quality reasons. When you talk about sequence length extrapolation, there are a lot of different strategies out there, including just using Alibi naively. Um, I have reams of data on that. When you tell me about like how many tokens per parameter should you use, I have tons of data on that and helping you kind of navigate that trade-off between training efficiency and inference efficiency. Um, so we have the receipts to back up all of these decisions, but we also have a set of best decisions that you can just turn the key on and you know get going and know that you're doing the right thing according to our best practices. Know that you're doing literally the thing that I choose to do when I'm spending my money to train my models. When you're talking about incorporating all of this in there, <laughs> you said something. Is it rope? It's rope, isn't it? What is it? Uh, so actually, I'm going to be making a decision this week on rope versus alibi. That is a this week decision. And if people are looking for the TLDR, um, Mosaic has gone with alibi historically. We love alibi. It gives you free extrapolation in a way that rope does not, or at least did not. The biggest problem is that the llama folks chose to use rope. And so there's much better support for rope in the ecosystem. In general, we've had to add our own um, flash attention kernels for Alibi. Um, we've had to add our own support for inference for Alibi, even though Alibi is way simpler. Um, I think, I hope due to some of our advocacy, there's now parity, like flash attention has both Alibi and rope support. So there isn't really a hard choice, but also rope extrapolation has gotten a lot better. So, you know, rope does come with some slowdowns. Um, there are like, there are costs to doing it because Alibi is just a much simpler thing to do. Um, so I'm going to have to make a tough decision this week. But right now, the data is basically that I see no huge difference between the two of them in any meaningful setting when it comes to just using it naturally, using modern sequence-like extrapolation methods. I don't see a huge difference. Um, so honestly, one could flip a coin at this point, and there are great choices either way, which is not usually true. Usually, I've got a very clear definitive view about, you know, UL2, you know, loss has not provided any benefit whatsoever for us just to pick on my friends at Google a bit because, um, you know, I don't like to pick on PhD students who write papers. Haven't seen a benefit from that at all. Um, in fact, has been slower and worse than just doing next token prediction in any setting we've measured. Um, so, you know, there are things that I have very strong opinions about, rope and alibi, ironically, not one of them. Do you have strong opinions on, I know some people have come through the community and asked about Slurm and the use of Slurm. It feels to me like that's kind of default. Do you have strong opinions about that? I, I do have a strong opinion about that, that one should use the Mosaic ML slash Databricks orchestration solution um, because <laughs> we thought about using Slurm and tried using Slurm. I've used Slurm in a lot of places and Slurm was not built for machine learning workloads. Um, there's a lot of stuff about just gang scheduling, higher level primitives. Um, Slurm is not Dockerized. Um, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't work well in Slurm because it was really built for a different universe. And the Slurm folks are doing a fantastic job trying to keep up with that, but they have a ton of different requirements and a ton of different audiences to support. We chose to write our own um, orchestration stack, and that's honestly the core of our product is everything is rolled into that orchestration stack. You use that, and we can automatically pull in all of your you know, API keys and secrets to various places, um, you know, log to MLflow or weights and biases, whatever you choose, um, automatically, automatically do hardware failure detection. It's, you know, it, all of that stuff is, you know, pretty straightforward to just bake into the product. And in Slurm, you kind of have to roll it all on your own and that gets pretty tricky. And I say this as an avid Slurm user in my academic life at Harvard. 
Yeah, it feels like it is one of those things that is almost an artifact from the academic life that's been brought over into the industry. And because most of the people that are that were doing it in academia, they learned how to do it and they were playing with it there. They come and get a job and it's their job to train a model. And they're like, well, I guess I'm going to keep using what I know how to use. But potentially their lives could be a lot easier. I, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Like Slurm is an excellent tool. And if you were to put me in an academic setting where, you know, costs were limited and you know in some sense i just even if i wanted to pay to make folks more productive i didn't have the money to do it i would roll with slurm um i think what mosaic offers in some sense is that you know if you have the money to pay for better tools to make people more productive um you know you go with mosaic orchestration in the same way that you know if cost is an issue you can go with tensorboard and tensorboard is a perfectly reasonable way to do experiment tracking um Things like MLflow or weights and biases or Comet ML or a lot of the paid solutions are way better and will make you more productive. Um, and it just comes down to you know what you need to pay for and what you don't. There's open source Spark, which is great um, if you can get it set up. Or there's managed Spark yeah. from Databricks, where you know it's a hell of a lot easier to use and way faster. Um, but you know it comes down to just where can you spend your budget. And I know plenty of folks where. The budget is getting consumed by GPUs and getting consumed by staffing. And so you got to make tough choices about, you know, some of the other products that you use. You can't buy everything fun um, as much as you'd like to. Yeah. Well, dude, speaking of GPUs, we got to talk about, it seems like you have a special affinity towards the GPU core. And what is, give us the story there. I mean, I, I grew up GPU poor and GPU underprivileged. Um, as a PhD student, um, and you know, it you know, I I joke, but to be completely honest, like when I did the lottery ticket work, which made my whole career and is the reason I get to have this conversation right now, um, I did it on a bunch of spare K80s and borrowed GPUs from the Vision cluster that I was temporarily given access to at MIT before it was taken away from me because I abused it, um, and you know, on a bunch of GPUs that IBM generously gave me even though I had applied for a whole different project from them and totally abused it for this and cost them a lot of money in stupid ways and took down their transatlantic links. Um, I'm forever indebted to IBM. They basically paid for my PhD. Um, but I remember sitting there and thinking, why does this have to be so expensive? All my friends have GPUs, but I am not in a lab that has GPUs. At that point, I was in a lab that did technology policy. Of course, we didn't have GPUs. And then I moved to my lab with Michael Carbon, who became my advisor, collaborator, um, now my fellow staff member at Mosaic, um, in addition to his job at MIT. And he was running a lab on programming language research. He didn't have any GPUs. So the first set of lottery ticket experiments, if you go to Archive and look at Archive V1, which I recommend everybody does if you want to see a really naive early draft of a paper that did have some impact, um, I did it all on my laptop. I trained such tiny networks that I could do it all on my laptop and then got one K80, and then eventually found the rest of the K80s and got up to four K80s. Um, and I have a dead K10 behind me right now, um, which IBM gave me as a token of all the GPUs I killed um, in the process of writing that paper. But I never really had much compute during my PhD unless I did internships. Um, and honestly, Google generously gave me access to a bunch of free TPUs during my PhD. Um, but otherwise, I was just doing it on a shoestring and doing the best I could. Um, 
it's a lot harder to do that today because I think the nature of deep learning changes at scale. And we've gotten really interested in scale in a way that I don't think we were in 2018. So that is harder. But my mission from that moment forward was kind of, why do these people get to have all those GPUs and I don't? And can we level the playing field? And Mosaic, like we spent two plus years just working to level the playing field to drive down the cost of the workloads that we thought were most important for industry and personally I thought were most important for academia. When you can pre-train BERT for 20 bucks, you have no excuse not to do that in your paper. When you can do ImageNet training for like a few dollars, you have no excuse not to do everything on ImageNet when you do your science. Um, and I like to hope that those recipes have helped to just democratize the ability to, to train these models in academia and do science. And now we're doing that with LLMs. Like we'll have a lot to say in a little while about some much more efficient ways of training LLMs that I hope will, you know, bring down the cost of doing this in academia by, you know, I don't know, call it conservatively like three to five X and less conservatively five to 10 X. And I hope that that means we get great science and that just any random PhD student, regardless of what lab they're in, can go and write an impactful paper and build a career in this the same way that I had the opportunity to do. You guys have uh, obviously found some breakthroughs with QSTAR. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we have this algorithm we call QSTAR. Um, we've been working really hard on it for three years, and I'm not sure how you found out about it, um, but it's going to revolutionize the way that you build AGI. It will bring about the singularity in, I think, three to six months. And, um, you know, in general, there will be no such thing as money after that. No, I, <laughs> one of my big, this is a podcast, so please do note the sarcasm here. Yeah. yeah. That... <laughs> Emphasis on sarcasm. If you're reading the transcript of this, that is sarcasm. <laughs> Just for the record, that is sarcasm. Do not quote me on this. Do not call me before Congress to testify about this. Um, you know, do not send me to prison for this. Do not pour water on my GPUs for fear that they will have sudden drops and loss and, you know, become sentient. No, I, you know, I joke, but it's also, you know, I, I'll be serious about kind of, I guess, two things that worry me about the field. Um, one is that we do tend to get caught up in the hype and the hype can be as simple as two characters that were posted on Twitter. Um, the hype can be as simple as a paper that somebody did a great job on at the scale that they could, um, but requires further validation at the scales that folks in industry care about and that, you know, will actually impact the field. And we get so caught up in that. I think everybody's really excited right now. And we're so used to the idea that just something will drop that will completely wreck our research agenda and force us to rethink everything that we're all just kind of a little shell-shocked and we think that may, you know, that could happen at any moment and maybe, it, you know, QSTAR, oh my gosh, maybe that's the next chat GPT, which is the next BERT, which is the next, you know, transformer, which is the next what have you. And we need to take a step back and pause and say like, look, this is a really exciting tweet, but can I reproduce it? I would say that my lab probably falsifies one major prominent paper on Twitter about once a month just in the course of doing our science to validate this stuff and scale it up. And it's not a laughing matter. These are, you know, this is the hard work of, in many cases, PhD students who are doing their best science and didn't have the resources or just the scale of team that I did to really beat the crap out of these ideas. We tend not to publicize it when it happens because, you know, A, I want to respect the scientific process and we can be wrong. And B, I've been that PhD student and, you know, 
even sometimes when the paper isn't perfect, you've done great science and you've demonstrated that you deserve to be in this field and one jerk in industry can ruin your career. I don't want to be that jerk, um, especially for people who are students and who are just learning how to do science for the first time. Um, But we do tend to find that a lot of popular papers, there's a reason I picked on Google before and not on a bunch of student papers, but there are a lot of popular papers we find that just do not hold up in practice as far as we can tell in our settings, Um, let alone looking at two characters like Q star and then extrapolating what it must mean and all that good stuff. Um, So, you know, that's thing number one, hype and science. The other is that we get just so caught up in the, like, the field is moving so fast, so it must continue to move so fast, and the field has changed so much, so it will continue to change, and there will be breakthroughs constantly. Um, If you had, I'm sure, asked a nuclear physicist in the 1940s or 50s what the world would look like in 2023, they would say that everything would be nuclear-powered, we would have nuclear fusion, um, we would have very small, safe nuclear reactors powering every device, probably down to things like cell phones, and electricity would be so cheap and plentiful it wouldn't need to be metered. Um, sometimes science doesn't progress in a neat line. It progresses in leaps and then consolidation. Um, if you told someone who looked at the progress of flight from, you know, let's say 1930 in propeller planes or 1910 and the first powered flight to jets toward the end of World War II to landing on the moon 15, 20 years later, um, you know, we'd be exploring other solar systems by now. Um, but you know, again, sometimes science doesn't proceed in such a neat, clean way. And that's okay, too. We've got a lot to consolidate here. Um, you know, quantum physics did not lead straight to cell phones. There was a lot of work we had to do in the process of getting there and making the most of it. Even if technology stopped today in terms of developing an AI, we have decades more juice to squeeze out of this and make really cool systems that are useful in our day-to-day lives, useful for businesses, um, you know, just good for the world. One of the things I'd love to just following up with that context is how would you then help, like, what would you tell folks that are trying to decipher, uh, like, the noise, basically, right? You've called, I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, but then what's the advice you would give to folks, how they can sort of, like, understand or read through all the hype, per se? Yeah, and I'm I'm actually very surprised that you don't call people out or at least like say hey this didn't work for us like it's working for you especially if there's something that is gaining a lot of traction and it can mislead uh, us on the internet that read it it's like whoa this is incredible i mean quite frankly i don't care about you on the internet um i care about my customers and i care about the people who actually need to go and make really tough choices to make an impact. So it's not that I keep this stuff secret and just tell my customers. Um, but I think we're really we're really into takedowns in machine learning to some extent. I've seen this happen to, you know, several papers that have come out lately where, you know, prominent researchers basically in a tweet wanted to go and take down some student who had the nerve to post a paper that, you know, they believed in and, you know, may not have been fully right or where they overclaimed a little bit. And that's not a good culture either. So I do like to correspond privately with authors. Um, I do like to share quietly among other folks in the community who I think benefit from that knowledge. Um, And we do have ways of conveying that. If you look at some of our blog posts, we'll talk about what worked and what didn't work for us. But it's not in a takedown sense. It's just a, you know, in a sense of kind of what we found and what we recommend. 
So it's, I want to be constructive and I want to be positive because science is also not a straight line. Um, you can look at my lottery ticket work. It worked in the settings I tested. It did not work anywhere beyond that. I had to go and basically redo the whole thing and rewrite the paper to figure out how to scale up. And the findings were a lot less compelling at scale than they were at small scales. I've been there. Like, that's just how science works. You do the best you can and then you iterate and other people provide feedback and you improve. So it's not about keeping it secret. It's more about how do you contribute that knowledge in a useful, constructive way? And how do you respect the well-being and the careers of junior scientists who are learning how to do this in an incredibly high-pressure, high-stress environment where millions of people in the world are watching what they do and want to take them down? That's a really tough place to be. And then some lab with a lot of resources and some people maybe you respect comes and does a takedown blog post of your ideas um, and makes you look yeah, like an idiot. Cool. That's when you leave the field. That's how you yeah. destroy our pipeline and you know ruin the careers and the happiness of a lot of people who will become more productive and become better at science over time given the opportunity. So I just won't operate that way. That is not how I like to do things. Um, there are other ways of making sure that that knowledge gets out into the field that are a little more respectful of the process and of people. I just have to highlight that we started this conversation with how you've been banned from panels in New York. And then you come to this, which is showing a whole different side of you. I think that is absolutely awesome. You get to see that you are very, you are not one dimensional at all. And it is cool to know that you are focusing on what works, what doesn't work, and not focusing on, hey, let's go and get in Twitter feuds with people or just figure out how to make others look bad. Let's just show people what is working for us. And so kind of getting back to Denny's question, cutting through the noise a little bit, besides reading the Mosaic blog, which uh, I told you before we hit record, I love, and I know you're, you've got stuff in the pipeline that's going to be coming out soon on that. What are other ways that you make sure to keep up to date and know what is real and what's not real. Is it the lab that you're doing these tests on and that's how you're making sure that things are for real or are there other ways? Yeah. So I, I'll say one last thing about your, you know, you drew the neat contrast of me, the person who's getting banned from panels in New York um, and me, the person who cares a lot about student well-being. My friends at Anthropic and Hugging Face and OpenAI and ScaleAI can take it. Um, and, you know, especially on panels, there is so much bullshit um, and so many people who are stuck in their talking points. And my usual goal on a panel is to cut through that crap and get to the nuts and bolts. I don't want to hear you give your marketing pitch for the 10th time. That's a waste of my time and the audience's time. I want to get to the real nuts and bolts. I want to know what it costs and how it works and what the numbers are and what's useful for people. And... I will get very combative with anyone who does not get straight to that point. Um, but a junior scientist who is writing a paper and is getting technical, they've already met that standard. And the rest is making sure that, you know, I treat them in a respectful and, you know, productive way and I look out for their well-being. The same as I love to do with anyone who I have a conversation with. I love fireside chats for that reason because, you know, we don't have to stick to talking points. We can get to the nuts and bolts. We can talk about what's actually hard, what I've done wrong, um, what I've done right. I can talk about how the lottery ticket work, like highly imperfect. That first paper, which is what a lot of people read in classes these days, is not the paper I would recommend anyone read. 
um, there's a subsequent paper that I think is much better and much more realistic that is my favorite paper I've ever written, but doesn't get read anywhere near as much because it's not the first paper. Um, but for how to cut through the noise, I, you know, the first bias I apply is just to basically, you know, not look at anything for a while after it comes out. Um, sure. you know, I will look at a paper like two to three months after it comes out if anyone still cares about that paper. Because I think you need to apply a bit of a, like, you need to smooth things out over time. Um, I don't tend to make big changes to model architectures until they've been out and popular for a few months. Um, you know, Rope became popular again post-Alibi, um, but I didn't know whether that was going to stick around or it was going to get replaced by something else. Um, and you see this happen all the time where there's a first paper that, like, shows something is really cool, followed by, like, 10 more papers that consolidate. And you get to like the really good version of it after a little bit. So I think you just have to smooth things out a bit. Um, there was a really cool paper that came out on, you know, state space models and showing how they scale up yesterday. Um, I'll read that paper in a couple months. Um, yeah. If it's still relevant to read that paper in a couple months, maybe it's a big idea and a bunch of people will build on it very quickly. Maybe, you know, it doesn't actually matter that much and it's a bunch of hype. Um, but time tends to smooth things out a little bit and the field doesn't move that fast. If someone like me who's feeling a lot of pressure to be on the bleeding edge is willing to wait two or three months to look at any paper, um, that should make you comfortable that you can do the same thing and you don't need to keep up constantly. And the other is just having a good team around me to say dumb things to and bounce ideas off of. Um, I love my team. I think I work with the most brilliant people in the world and the most humble people in the world. And anyone's willing to tell me I'm wrong or tell me we should be doing something better. I am not the king of this team or anything like that. I'm not infallible. I rely on them to be the people who are on the ground. I think there's a huge trend of people who get somewhat ML famous, um, an emphasis on ML famous and not actual famous, because quite frankly, ask my mom who Jan LeCun is, and, um, you know, she doesn't know Jan LeCun from, you know, no. I don't know anybody else. But people then try to turn into profits and predict the future. Um, and I think... This is a field where the people on the ground who are working with this stuff day to day have the very best insights into the nature of what works, what doesn't, where the technology is, where the technology isn't. And those of us who are no longer with our feet on the ground every single day are just not the best experts. And I'm a manager now. I'm an administrator in many ways. I am not the person I look to for the best insights on this. Typically, when people reach out to me, I will route them to the person on my team who is building the thing. Because they've read all the papers, they've done all the experiments, they have the best insight. I love hiring people straight from PhD onto my team, and I don't love hiring people who are like senior and famous in their careers, because I think those people are actually much worse than people fresh out of PhDs who have grappled with the stuff in a hands-on way and continue to. Um, I love hanging out with PhD students for that reason, and I think they know a lot more than I do. It goes back to the idea of let the policymakers make the policies. Let the PhDs do that do that hard work out of what it is. And even let the PhDs be the one to make the predictions, not the managers who think they know what they're doing or where things are going to go. Yeah, and I do see a lot of like, you know, for my friends who are at any big lab, I do see a lot of management versus people on the front line conflict over which ideas should be pursued and what makes sense and what doesn't. And my solution to that is to trust the hell out of my team. 
when someone on my team comes to me with a really strongly held view that we should do X, I'll interrogate them and push them a little bit um, just to make sure that that view is really strongly held and they have the evidence to back it up. And then I'll say, okay, we'll do that. Um, because in my experience, they're right many more times than I am. So in some sense, you know, having me on a podcast, like, yeah, cool, I technically run the lab. I am the least interesting person to talk to of everyone on my team. And, you know, the next time you invite someone back from Databricks, you should talk to the most junior person on my team because they're the one who has the most interesting and practical things to say. And how long do you feel like these iterations or the different ideas that you're running with, how long do those take to bear fruit or show that they're not working? And how do you look at like, all right, we're trying to replicate this paper. Is it days, weeks, months? And what does that process look like? It's months. It's always months. And I think I I run into this all the time with even folks at Databricks where they'll come to me and say, hey, can you just test out this idea? You know, let me know tomorrow what you think. My answer is I'll let you know next quarter or next half or next year what this is. To do good science, it takes time. But, you know, it's probably one month minimum to like reproduce a paper and test it carefully. It's six months for ideas that are worth putting six months into. And that's fine. For a question like rope versus alibi, if you're about to train a model that will cost you millions of dollars, you sure as hell better put three months into that. If you're trying to figure out whether Laura is hype um, and it just happened to show up at the right time when a bunch of people were new to the field and thought that was the only way to do parameter-efficient fine-tuning, whether Laura is genuinely a better way to do parameter-efficient fine-tuning, that's a decision that will have huge implications for all the models you build for a long time to come. You sure as hell better put months into that. When you're making big changes to your model architecture, you better make sure they scale or you're going to really regret it. Um, so I think it is like, this is an artisanal process. Um, you know, what we do at Mosaic is farm raised and organic and, you know, hand tossed and, you know, what have you. Um, but the end result is that every technical decision we've made about how we train our models and how we recommend other people train our models, I have a fact sheet that I can hand you to make the case that that was the right decision. And I think there you can't, well, actually you can put a price on that. Um, go train a $10 million model and then realize you didn't do it well. That's the price on that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the danger, right? That you, you're like, oops, all that GPU and nothing to show for it. That is a little bit scary to think about. And so one other piece that I was wondering about, what is on your radar right now? What is interesting to you? So there are a bunch of things that are interesting to me. I'm always on the lookout for tweaks to, you know, model architectures or tweaks to the way we train that improve efficiency. I'm not on the lookout for breakthroughs. Um, I think breakthroughs come once in a very long while. And I can, I can rattle off, if you really want, a bunch of fun things that have come out in the past several years that everybody looked at as breakthroughs at the time or thought, oh, this might be the next big thing. Um, and now, like, anybody heard of, like, NFNets? Um, the normalization free nets that were supposed to replace resnets and get rid of batch norm, um, we still don't use them. They're they're a really cool architecture and it was really great research. Um, anybody heard of vision transformers? Um, I don't know. I still train a lot of resnets um, and resnets seem to have, I think, survived the vision transformer push and are still the thing that I go to first. 
Um, there are all sorts of new attention schemes that have come and gone. So I'm not, you know, the next big thing in machine learning has come like once in a decade or two. If you look at convnets and RNNs and LSTMs and, um, you know, transformers, maybe diffusion models, like they don't come around very often. And if you're looking for the next big thing, you're going to be sorely disappointed or you're just going to get taken by every LinkedIn post and tweet that you see. It's possible that yesterday we just had a huge breakthrough that's going to change everything, or it's possible that we had another very exciting piece of science that doesn't end up replacing anything that we're doing right now. Could go either way. Um, So I look for the incremental things. I look for, I also look for kind of new questions people are asking. Like there are a lot of questions right now about how we measure the performance of models in long contexts. That's a really interesting question. You know, Anthropic has great work on 200K context windows. They can fit it into memory. Can you actually take advantage of it in a meaningful way? Can the model actually, like, you know, are they compromising on so much that the information gets lost or the model can't holistically take advantage of it? I don't know because I don't know how to measure that. I look for things on evaluation right now and better ways to evaluate models because I think that's a mess. I'm really interested in synthetic data right now because the textbooks are all you need papers from Microsoft. Those are really cool. And those are compelling to me. The Llama 2 folks kind of indicate in the paper that they did a lot of automatic generation of supervised fine-tuning data once they bootstrapped their model to a certain point. That's pretty intriguing because supervised fine-tuning data is expensive and hard to come by. Um, You know, I think a lot about debugability of neural networks. Like, how do you change a neural network once it's in flight to fix a problem? Um, I think a lot about how end users can create new tasks. If a Databricks user comes to me and they say, I want to fine-tune your model to do this new business process, Okay, they need a training set, they need a test set, um, and they need a metric to figure out whether they're doing well on that test set. Those are really non-trivial, and there's a lot of expertise that goes into developing any training or test set that's publicly available. How do you help them to do that quickly and with very little expertise so that they can just get back to work on solving their problems? Those are the kinds of things where I'm like on the lookout for interesting ideas, because uh, those are real problems I have. And if I were talking to someone in academia right now, those are the problems that make a difference. Not like, can you build the next transformer? Like, that's a problem where the answer is, no, you probably can't, um, because it took a lot of people trying, and someone who got, you know, both very talented and also right place, right time um, to actually do that. So, you know, I tend to be a realist on this. Damn, I should have led with that question, because there's so many things that you just rattled off right there that I would love to dive into, but for the sake of time, I want to at least hear what your deep thoughts are on the debugability, because I know that is something that people, it's almost like a freight train. You get on the train or uh, as others put it, buy the ticket, take the ride. You can't quite hop off the roller coaster when it's mid-flight per se. And so how are you trying to help that uh, not be different? I'm trying to help that by talking to people smarter than me who are specialists in this, because I'm not. Um, I have a friend, Julius Adebayo, um, who's, I think, currently a postdoc right now at NYU. He was an office mate of mine during our PhDs, and he's the person I turn to because he's actually written papers on it and studied the hell out of it. That is not an area where I have tons and tons of expertise. Um, And my job is not to pontificate on things I don't know, but to go and talk to smarter people than me. So happy to send you his info. You go talk to him. He's a cool guy to have on. And, you know, he's he's also known as the guy who ruined interpretability. Um, that is to say, he wrote a bunch of papers during his PhD, taking interpretability methods and falsifying them. 
He has a great experiment he ran where he took some vision networks, um, ran interpretability methods on them to look for what they said, and then randomized various layers of the networks and ran the same interpretability method and got the same result, even though the network was garbage. Um, he applied science to a field that I think had diverged away from science and brought it to heel. Um, and now he's done some cool work on debuggability and other neat stuff. Um, that's someone who I would go and talk to. Incredible. Well, dude, this has been fascinating. I appreciate you a ton coming on here. Denny, I also appreciate you being here and helping me out with the, uh, with the support and questions, I had a blast and I look forward to getting to read the Mosaic blog again. I think by the time this podcast is out, you'll probably have something up and uh, ready for us. And then you'll have lots of other fun updates for us. And so I'll be waiting at the edge of my chair as time goes on to see what you all are doing. I know you're cooking up a lot of cool stuff that have special project names that I can't pronounce. And none of them, surprisingly, have anything to do with QSTAR, which is a bit of a, a letdown, but I'll, I'll wait for when it comes out to see what actually happens. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been a lot of fun as always. And, you know, maybe you'll invite me to a panel someday. <laughs> <laughs> you are not banned in my book. Exactly. You are definitely not banned. And that is, you keep it spicy. You've got other hot takes that I love. And uh, any last hot take before we go that you want to sign off with? My last hot take is, you know, do science and only say what you can back up with data. Boom. That's it. That's the podcast right there. Ops. You have to immerse yourself in the MLOps content. The best way to do it is to subscribe to the MLOps Community Podcast. So, good luck and keep learning.